Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's time for us to commence. So it, that means it's commencement time. So we shall do that. Our text for today is found in Hebrews chapter 2, and most specifically verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. Let, us, uh, let me lead us in prayer to get started, and then we'll, we'll dig into this, this passage from God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have this morning to consider these things, and, and we have been uh, looking at warnings from your scriptures for several weeks now, and we have to confess that this is serious, that there are serious things, and uh, today is no exception, Lord. So I pray that as we look at this passage, that you would grant us hearts to understand and believe, and the will to put into action, into practice, that which you've called us to do. Be with those, Father, who are away from us today for various reasons. Protect them and meet their needs um, according to your sovereign grace. And those who are homesick today, Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to them and grant them good health. We know of several who are struggling with various illnesses, and so we ask that you would be merciful to them. But for those of us who are able to be here, um, meet with us, Lord, and, and give us your spirit and help us as we try to study your word well. This we pray in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. So, we are going through this series on warnings from Scripture looking at it from, from the perspective of the five questions. Uh, the five questions, to whom is the warning addressed? What danger prompts the warning? What is the nature of the warning? Fourthly, what response is appropriate to the warning? And then finally, what, in, what are the encouragements to obey? And uh, um, for, the, for this week... Um, uh, in this passage of Hebrews, we're going to spend a lot of time setting the context. The context is pretty important to the nature of this warning and to the ones that we'll be following in the next few weeks. And so um, we'll probably spend a little more time uh, developing that than we have been the last several weeks. But this one from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which say, Therefore... We must pay much closer attention. Did you catch that? Let me say that again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. 
How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Ah, do you get the sense of urgency there? This warning that's being, being set for us by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. Well, we'll start with setting the context to whom is the warning addressed. And for our last few weeks of the series, we will be considering some warnings found in the book of Hebrews. In order for us to most effectively uh, glean the significance of these warnings, it is important that we get a good grasp of the context of the epistle. And this will set the context then for the next few weeks. The timing of the writing of the letter matters to us. The historical background tells us that probably both Peter and Paul are gone. The two great leaders of the Christian movement have departed from this life. That must have been something of a shock, quite traumatic for these early Christians. In Rome, a church had been established even before Paul had entered that city the first time as a prisoner. It consisted largely of Gentile converts who had come to Rome, most likely from other influential congregations Paul had established. When Paul finally arrived in Rome, he very quickly preached the gospel to the Jewish leaders. And we, uh, we, uh, we read about this in Acts chapter 28, where Paul requests a meeting with these Jewish leaders there, and they agreed to meet with him. And so we see in verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And it was from this group of Jewish converts that we likely find the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, cruel Nero was reigning at the time Paul was imprisoned. Recall that Nero had murdered his stepbrother, his own mother, his wife, Octavia, his tutor, Seneca, as well as others. I can't resist saying that, no, Nero wasn't from North Korea, okay? He was in Rome at this time. But similarities, anyway. When Rome burned in AD 64, people accused him, Nero, of having set the city on fire. He sought to turn attention from himself 
and place the blame on the Christians. And popular opinion turned more emphatically against the Christians. Many believe that Peter suffered martyrdom about this time, uh, shortly after having sent his two epistles. Paul had been released earlier and was traveling on his missionary activities. And in the meantime, Christianity had become a forbidden religion. Accordingly, sometime between 65 and 68, Paul was again made a prisoner, perhaps at Troas, from where he may have written the letter to the Philippians we considered a couple of weeks ago. Eventually, Paul was brought back to Rome for a second imprisonment, which was severe and brief. There he was condemned to death and beheaded on the Ostian Way, about three miles outside the capital. It is probable that when the persecution arose, it was at first directed against the old established congregation of chiefly Gentile believers. The Jews, being more recent converts and in a class by themselves, escaped for a while. Soon, however, the threat of imminent persecution faced everyone who worshipped the Christ. Moreover, this persecution was of, a, of the most bitter variety. We have read the horrible accounts in the annals of the Christian church of the persecution of that time period. A general consensus consists that it was this group of recent converts, the body of Jewish believers in Rome who did not belong to the old predominantly Gentile church and continued to meet by themselves to whom the epistle was written. Hence, the name of the book, Hebrews. It seems these Jewish converts, as relative newcomers to Christianity at the time of the letter, were surprised by the strength and vitriol of the threat of persecution. That had clearly dampened their zeal for their newfound faith. We will consider our warnings from that perspective. And we will talk about why that is important for us as we go along. Now, there's great difference among theologians and scholars as to who the author of the epistle is. It is interesting to study the observations that show why it couldn't have been this person and it couldn't have been that person. And, uh, but it could have been some other person. The bottom line is, we just don't know. Okay? The author neither addressed the letter nor signed the letter. So for our purposes, we will maintain that the author is anonymous. At any rate, the recipients certainly knew the author, for it was a personal letter. 
Often, the author includes himself in the exhortations to the readers, and he refers to them as brothers, and often addresses them as you, which makes the admonitions contained in the letter pointed and specific. Additionally, as part of the canon of Scripture, we do recognize that the letter was penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, the author is God. So, we must receive our instruction as from God. Virtually all agree that the grand theme of this epistle is the supremacy and finality of Christ. In the first verses of the letter, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And then he goes on to describe some of the aspects of the superiority of Christ. By his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author then continues to demonstrate how Christ is superior to the angels, superior to Moses and Joshua, and superior to the Melchizedekian and Levitical priesthood, all of which refer to the Old Covenant Judaism. The author presses home the superiority of the New Covenant to the Old Covenant. The inadequacy of the tabernacle, temple, ritual, and the difference between Christ's sacrifice and the sacrifices of the old covenant. The latter are shadows, but Christ's sacrifice is the substance, the true form to which Old Testament sacrifices pointed. Indeed, Jesus is not only superior in every way for the life and hope and the life of faith and the hope of salvation, he is the final purveyor of redemption. Scholars tell us that this was a sermonic letter. In fact, many scholars call it a written sermon. That means that although it was personal, it was written with a very clear message in mind. And so we have both doctrinal as well as, or do, excuse me, we have both doctrinal instruction as well as pointed exhortation in focus. And so with that background and context in mind, we come to our second question. What danger prompts the warning? Well, for that, we need just a tad more context. You see, based on the content of the letter, it seems evident that the ones who received it were actually heading in a bad and severely dangerous direction. 
because of the swelling tide of the threat of persecution, the temptation and even the tendency became apparent to desert the cause of Christ. Their conversion had brought them hardship and persecution with the result that some had slipped back into Judaism. Apostasy was the paramount danger. Okay? Apostasy. And that is the danger we will be looking at for a few weeks. Now, we can't spend a great time here, a great deal of time here, but we need to consider this problem of apostasy. In a way, we are establishing context for the next four lessons. You know, I think there are degrees of unpopular teaching in our culture today, even within the evangelical community. Warning against apostasy is one of those forbidden topics. To talk about it will make a preacher or teacher very unpopular. Well, I will be talking about it for the next four weeks. So, please, wait until then to tar and feather me and run me out of Dodge. <laughs> no, I don't think that will be the response of our church. <laughs> but nobody likes to talk about apostasy, except maybe the moralists, because they can use it as a threat to manipulate people's behavior. But that's not what it's about. Evangelicals don't like it because it is scary. And we need to think happy thoughts, bro. It's all good, man. No worries, dude. Right? Well, the eternal security people don't like it. Because it sounds like we can lose our salvation. And God forbid we ever question and evaluate our status with Him. No need. Once saved, always saved, right? Well, yes. But what is meant by the term saved? The hyper-grace people don't like it either because it implies, to them at least, legalism. No works. No works. No works. The problem is, the Bible does teach the danger and threat of apostasy. People do apostatize. And if apostasy was the paramount danger being warned against in the book of Hebrews, it requires our consideration. For the warnings to the Hebrew Christians are warnings for us. Although we may not be considering going back to Old Covenant Judaism, there may be something else that we could be tempted to return to particularly in the light of growing cultural disfavor and threats of persecution. So then, what is apostasy? 
Well, simply put, apostasy is a professing believer's defection from the faith. One has made a profession of faith, has even given indication that the profession is credible, perseveres for a time, likely regularly attends church, but eventually turns or falls away and abandons the true faith. There are two main questions that this idea of apostasy immediately raises. First, is it possible for a true believer to apostatize? And second, what would lead a person to apostatize? Now, it is that second question which is relevant to our thoughts of the warnings in Hebrew. But as to the first question, we must emphatically answer that no true believer, that is, none of the elect will ever apostatize. Although, that is not to say that there may not be seasons of backsliding and coldness and weakness in a real Christian's walk. But the biblical teaching of the nature of what salvation is and entails, informs us that one who is truly regenerated will persevere to the end. Of that, we want to be clear, okay? The second question, however, certainly begs to be seriously considered in light of our texts over these weeks. What would cause a professing Christian to apostatize? For that is a very danger the writer to the Hebrews and the writer to us is warning about. Well, before we get into the nature of the warning as set forth in our text, let me take you to a very unsettling passage of Scripture. A few weeks ago in this series of warnings, we were warned by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount about false prophets and false teachers. Listen to Peter's description of them in 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read the entire chapter. 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Sounds like apostasy. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, 
And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, which we talked about last week. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They will count it pleasure, or they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. That's a description of apostasy. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists, driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, it's another description of apostasy. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Apostasy. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Can this happen? Indeed it can. 
It has. And it does. And it will. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 4, 1-3 tells us, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I think it's interesting, the nature of the deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So one answer to our question as to what would cause someone to apostatize is listening to and accepting false teaching. We've been warned about that before. In the case here, though, the issue the Hebrew Christians were facing was the realization of the threat of persecution. They were being tempted in the face of growing persecution to go back to a more comfortable and seemingly safer way of believing and living. Persecution is no fun. It's bad. And that brings us to the nature of the warning set forth in our text. The author suggests there is the danger of drifting away from what we have heard. Now, We've already identified what it was that they had learned, the superiority and sufficiency of Christ, the true gospel. And this will be developed more thoroughly as the letter develops. But for now, these Jewish Christians are being warned of a danger, the danger of drifting away. What is it to drift away? And what does it imply? Well, We know what it is to drift, don't we? One of the delights of living here in San Diego is going to the beach. I do enjoy, even at my age, wading out into the surf. Slowly and painfully, of course, because every time I go to the ocean, it seems the water gets colder. But once I grow accustomed to the water, if I grow accustomed to the water. I enjoy bobbing around with the waves and maybe doing a little body surfing. Or hopping on my boogie board and watching everyone else catch the waves while I float there. (laughs) But I'm sure you've experienced what I've experienced. While enjoying the passing of time, looking back toward the shore and suddenly realized that I have unknowingly drifted quite some distance from where I started. The current, or maybe on a lake, the wind, has moved me a ways in one way, or one direction, or further away from the land. Sometimes such an event can cause a moment of panic. I've drifted. How does it happen? 
Well, it happens by not paying attention. It happens slowly. It happens kind of secretly. But it happens by not paying attention, by not intentionally resisting the current or the drift. Well, that is what our text is describing. It says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Numerous times throughout the book of Hebrews, the readers are encouraged not to desert Christianity and abandon the faith, either in their own confession or in their practice. Don't go back, they are told. In this passage, we seem to have a twofold danger here, one which leads to the other. First is the danger of drifting away from what we have heard, which amounts to neglecting such a great salvation. By not paying attention, by neglecting what they have heard, they are in actuality neglecting. Uh, we see in verse 3 their very salvation. You catch that con connection. By neglecting what they have heard, they are actually neglecting their very salvation. How shall we escape? Verse 3 says, if we neglect such a great salvation. How shall we escape what? That brings us to a second danger. The danger of receiving just retribution for transgression or disobedience. Now, the message declared by the angels referred to here, uh, which was proved to be reliable, declared to be reliable, was we understand the Mosaic law. The law was reliable. But the law points out our guilt. The law points out our failure. The law points out our sin. And the wages of sin is death. Transgression of the law must be punished. All sin merits punishment. And all have sinned. But our author tells us there has been provided a great salvation. Verse 3 tells us it was first declared by our Lord and it was attested to by those who heard. It makes deliverance from the necessary punishment for our disobedience available. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who is superior to the old covenant. It is a great salvation. But, and here's the warning, how shall we escape if we drift away and neglect such a great salvation? And the point is, we won't escape. Turn over 
to chapter 6. Here is a stark description of apostasy, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Now, we'll come back to this passage in future weeks. But right now, understand this. Apostasy results in condemnation. It is the just retribution for neglecting such a great salvation. And that neglect occurs when we drift away from what we have learned of Christ. The truth is, we would have to be pretty oblivious not to see the mounting winds of persecution coming our way today. Some of our brothers and sisters across the globe face very severe persecution even as we sit in our comfortable seats and worry that someone might not like us and might say something unkind to us or about us if we stand firm in our witness of gospel truth. Yet many of us must confess that we struggle with boldness in the face of the threat of someone's displeasure. What might we be like in the face of real tribulation and persecution? Here's a warning speaking to that eventuality. Don't go back. Pay attention, lest we drift, because the pressure is strong. The current is firm. Don't go back. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Well then, what response is appropriate to the warning? The response is written within the warning. Pay attention, or pay much closer attention to the things we have heard. Verse 3 tells us, It was declared by the Lord. It was attested to by us, uh, to us by those who heard. It is being preached to us Every week, at least in this place, Paul told us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, 
Let no one deceive you in any way. Pay attention to the things you have heard. Pay attention to the things we are hearing. We're short on time, and we will develop this more in the weeks ahead, but consider this. The antidote to drifting is intentionality, isn't it? A dead piece of wood will simply drift along with the current of a stream. But a living, animate being will intentionally swim in the direction he wishes to go. If you are alive in Christ, don't be as if you are dead and inanimate. Act. Be intentional. Resist the tide of this culture. Listen once more to Peter from 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pay attention to the things you have heard and grow in grace and knowledge. Our Lord himself told us in Matthew 24, 11 to 13, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Pay attention to the things you have heard. Grow in grace and knowledge. Endure to the end. What are the encouragements to obey? Did you catch our Lord's pronouncement a moment ago? He said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Our text reminds us that it is such a great salvation. And thus, the purpose for writing was to encourage them not to fall away. Be careful even not to drift away, but to press on even in the face of persecution, for they have a great Savior and a great salvation. May God grant us as well the grace to endure to the end in this great salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, these are uh, stirring words because in our routines and in our daily lives, we sometimes grow oblivious to 
to the intensity of the battle that is taking place over our very souls. Yes, and we look at our culture and we grieve over what we see happening and we, and we look at the world and we think my sin is just so prevalent and, and there is much that's, that's going wrong and, and we are eager and, and looking forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and we are looking forward to eternity. But Father, we are warned that it's possible for someone to drift away. And so, Father, we who name the name of Jesus Christ, we who make profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are encouraged by your sovereign grace that you will give us the strength to persevere, to endure to the end. Calls us, Father, to pay attention to the things that we've learned and the things that we hear. Calls us, Father, to resist the pressure to drift. Calls us, Father, to persevere, to endure. Father, give us hearts that are full of praise for our, for our great God, our Heavenly Father, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His Spirit, who ministers in our hearts, giving us strength and blessing. Father, thank you and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.